Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Monkeypox is growing in numbers with thousands of cases surfacing across the globe and over 100 here in Canada. The World Health Organization is putting our planet on notice. It has convened an emergency meeting set for next week to determine how to handle monkeypox. The WHO's technical lead for monkeypox, Canada's Dr. Rosamond Lewis, earlier this week warned that this infectious disease must be contained as soon as possible to keep it from spreading to the general population. So what does that mean? Hello, Anne. It's a pleasure to join your show. As a technical lead for monkeypox for the World Health Organization, it's, it's my responsibility to support uh, the response in every aspect uh, and make sure that the information that is being shared with the general public is technically correct and useful to help people to protect themselves. And what is your background in terms of research and the understanding of an infectious disease like monkeypox? My own background, I trained in Canada as a public uh, health physician, as a medical epidemiologist, and uh, as a family physician before that. So I bring the medical understanding to to this, and I also bring my um, training in epidemiology and public health and preventive medicine. And my career has been primarily, uh, not exclusively, but largely around a management of uh, immunization and vaccine-preventable diseases. And the word preventable is really important, particularly in this discussion. So the WHO is obviously taking monkeypox very seriously and the spread of it around the globe. They've convened an emergency meeting on June the 23rd. So what, in your view, does that signal, Dr. Lewis? The World Health Organization has decided to convene an emergency committee, which is a provision under the International Health Regulation. So this is an agreement between member states of the World Health Organization, which includes most uh, members, most countries in the world. So the purpose of the emergency committee is to determine, is to discuss the situation. It's already been um, considered uh, an emergency, but um, to, to determine what type of advice can be given to WHO and member states, and to decide if it qualifies at this time as a public health emergency of international concern. And if it is considered a, a, a global health emergency, what steps can the WHO take uh, in, in order to protect the planet? The provision of uh, calling a, a situation a public health emergency of international concern gives the emergency committee and WHO the possibility of providing temporary recommendations, what are called temporary recommendations, to member states. In other words, it, it this puts a bit more... Um, authority behind the work that we're already doing. Are you concerned? You know, monkeypox has been around for a while, but there is this sudden surge in numbers, and I'm not sure if it's mutating into something different. Are you, Dr. Lewis, concerned about monkeypox right now? The situation around monkeypox at the moment is quite concerning because it has been a disease that's been known for 50 years. It was first discovered at the towards the tail end um, the smallpox eradication program, uh, the first case in a, in a person was uh, found in 1970, just as smallpox was beginning to wind down. So it was important to assess this uh, situation and see if monkeypox was going to be uh, as severe an illness as, as smallpox was before eradication. So the fact that since that time, there's been a, a very progressive and gradual increase in the number of cases being reported from the countries uh, where this was already known and uh, some research had been done around that time. What we are seeing now is a completely different and unusual situation because there are a number of cases being reported in many countries, 42 at the moment, pretty much all in a very short period of time. In a matter of a few weeks, we have reached uh, 2,000 cases in 42 countries. This is, this, although monkeypox is not a new disease, this is a completely unprecedented situation, which brings with it uh, some risk. It's my understanding that for instance, COVID-19, its origins were in animals. And it's also my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that monkeypox started in animals and jumped to humans. Is there any connection between these two infectious diseases? Monkeypox is a zoonotic disease, so it is well described as, as um, occurring in small outbreaks in 
remote forested areas where people uh, do go into the forest and trap wild game, for example, and then bring that as uh, as, as food for or for the families or to sell at market. So this is a, a well understood uh, mode of transmission from um, animals who may be uh, infected uh, in in a forested setting, and then uh, bringing it into families um, where outbreaks have been very small because it's the disease that has not traditionally been um, very uh, easy to transmit from one person to another. It requires very close interpersonal contact. Uh, so the fact that it's a zoonosis is pretty much the only thing um, that is similar to, to what COVID is, which um, SARS-CoV-2 is also uh, a virus that has moved from the animal kingdom to, to human populations. But otherwise, they are completely different viruses. They cause completely different diseases. They occur in very different settings, and they transmit in very different ways. So we are not at all uh, saying that there's any relationship at the moment between COVID uh, or, or, or monkeypox. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a disease that has been known for a long time. It has been monitored. Uh, research has been done. Um, vaccines, diagnostics, and treatments have been developed uh, for smallpox, which is related. So they are now uh, being, being brought to being considered for monkeypox. And, um, and it's a completely different situation. But as I said before... The fact that it's now occurring in many countries in a short period of time uh, is certainly concerning, and uh, we would like to encourage that all measures be taken to control this outbreak. Dr. Lewis, you warned earlier this week that monkeypox needs to be contained as soon as possible to stop it from spreading to the general population. So I have two questions about that. Why is it targeting a specific, it seems, part of the population? And how would containment stop it from spreading to the general population? Well, as, as epidemiologists and public health professionals, when we're investigating an outbreak, wherever that may be, the, the first thing we do is a is, um, very elementary description of what is actually taking place. So uh, the first thing we, we need to know is where is this happening? What is the time frame in which this is happening and which, which population groups, which persons are actually affected? So what we're describing right now is that what we're seeing is that the infection is being transmitted in, in groups of uh, men who have self-described as uh, men who have sex with men. They could be gay, bisexual, or other men who have sex with men. And they have informed us that this is uh, the, the persons who have acquired monkeypox have informed us themselves of this. And so now as we are, uh, as, the, as member states are investigating their outbreaks, they are still reporting that 99% of cases are occurring in men. And that a very, very, very high number of those are still occurring amongst um, men who have had uh, recent or multiple sexual contacts. But the reason this is important is because this actually continues to confirm what we already knew about monkeypox, which is that it's, a, it's an infectious disease that transmits through close interpersonal contact. So it's important that this information is, is shared and well understood for two reasons. One is that those who are themselves at risk, in other words, through activities that may put them in close physical contact with other persons who may have already been exposed to monkeypox, means that they are at risk. If they have this information, they can and appreciate their own level of risk. They can lower their own level of risk um, by taking the measures they need to protect themselves and also to protect others. The second thing is that, yes, uh, if, if it's possible to control this outbreak in this group, then uh, it's also possible to prevent onward transmission to those who may be more vulnerable. And by more vulnerable, we mean including those who may be um, immunosuppressed for different reasons, whether that's um, due to medications they may be taking, underlying conditions they may have, HIV infection that's not fully controlled. Those are examples of immunosuppression, but also uh, children, infants, um, persons who are pregnant, may all um, have a higher risk of severe disease with this, with this particular infection. So we would like to prevent onward spread of monkeypox um, by informing those who are most at risk at present so that they can protect themselves, their immediate families, and, and their um, friends and contacts. What's your best advice to Canadians right now? We're seeing well over 100 cases at this point, and, and it's really kind of spread across the country with the bulk of them in the province of Quebec. What's your best advice right now to Canadians in terms of prevention and treatment? What we would like to, um, the information we would like to offer to Canadians is to really just inform yourself 
um, be aware. Uh, there's lots and lots of information out there already on different reputable websites, uh, whether it's your local public health unit, your provincial or your national uh, federal public health unit uh, information uh, websites. Um, there are increasing numbers of resources already becoming available in, in, in civil society organizations, community groups, among um, groups that support uh, and work with people who may be at risk, and amongst organizers of festivals. So, for example, um, outdoor summer festivals, um, pride parades, uh, festivals where there may be large numbers of people who wouldn't um, be at risk just by attending a festival. But if there are perhaps side events where there is more frequent uh, close uh, face-to-face contact, skin-to-skin contact, mouth-to-skin contact, those are the kinds of activities where people may be at risk. So the important thing is to be aware, to be informed, to appreciate your own level of risk by, by learning about it, and through which um, you can take your uh, own measures to, to protect yourself. Huh. Um, that's, that's, yeah, that's the most important thing. <laughs> Very good advice. Canada's Dr. Rosamond Lewis, the WHO's technical lead for monkeypox, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. You're very welcome, Anne. Next, from the perspective of public health here in Ontario, Dr. Farine Karachiwala joins us. She is an Associate Medical Officer of Health in our own backyard here in York Region. Thank you for being a part of this in-depth look at monkeypox, Dr. Karachiwala. So let's begin, if you will, with kind of monkeypox 101, its origins. Where did this come from? How did it begin? Yeah, and thank you so much for having me on the show to talk about this important issue. So, yeah, the origins, um, very interesting. This is a relatively recent disease. So monkeypox first originated, the first human case actually was discovered in 1970, and that was in Central Africa. So to date, we've mostly seen outbreaks in Central and West Africa, It is a zoonotic disease, so that means that it initially originated in animals and then was um, transmitted or passed on in the human population. So like I said, it's been limited up to this point, and what's new now is the spreading beyond Central and West Africa in a more prolonged way in multiple countries across the, the world. It seems to target a certain sector of the population, and that would be men. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so what's important to keep in mind is the virus doesn't discriminate. Um, Any person is susceptible if they've had contact with a confirmed case, somebody who's been symptomatic. Um, What we're seeing and how it was sort of introduced into the population in other countries across the world um, is it is spreading at this time among certain community groups, population groups. So at this time, Uh, gay and bisexual men who have sex with men in the Canadian context. That's where we've seen a large portion of confirmed cases. Um, But anyone is susceptible. It's just right now that's where it's spreading and transmitting. But with proper control measures, vaccination strategy, case contact management, those tools that we've also seen with COVID, uh, hopefully spread will be limited and not look like what COVID uh, did look like. Um, But yeah, it's not a disease that targets any one group. It just happens to be spreading there. And we've seen this with other diseases, Um, you know, tuberculosis, for example. um, There's risk criteria for that. You know, in the early days of COVID as well, we had, um, you know, it began in sort of certain ethnocultural groups. But just to say it is a virus that doesn't actually target any one specific group. And and like COVID, it seemed to have its origins in animals and then jumped to humans. I find that fascinating and also a little disturbing. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, there is this sort of intermixing. Um, typically, it's rodents or monkeys that can be infected, and you can get it, humans can get it from a bite or a scratch of that animal um, or eating its meat uh, and that type of thing. So we're also telling people, you know, if you are sick, avoid contact with animals. Um, Public health would definitely get involved for any confirmed cases. So we would be advising people of all the precautions to take um, to limit that further transmission or spread onwards. The World Health Organization is putting the planet on, you know, kind of on high alert. They've got an emergency meeting for next week about monkeypox. Uh, Its technical lead for monkeypox, Dr. Rosamond Lewis, who joined us moments ago on the feed, put out a warning a few days ago saying that it needs to be contained now, monkeypox, in order to stop it from spreading to the general population. What does that mean? 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is one of those conditions that it's not very easily transmitted beyond, um, you know, from people to people. Like, it is not as easily spread as COVID. So this is really good news. Like, you actually do need very close, prolonged contact, so being like a household contact, an intimate partner of somebody who's infected. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, the, con- the controls are really important. And this means um, isolating when you have symptoms, So public health units get involved and ask people to self-isolate. We do contact tracing. uh, So make sure anyone who's been exposed has some control measures in place, that they're also looking for signs and symptoms. And we are actually vaccinating anyone that would have been in contact with a confirmed case um, themselves. So all of those things should help really um, rein it in and prevent any further spread. But yeah, like we've learned with COVID, it's really important to stay on top of things. So we urge anyone, um, you know, public health is reaching out to you, you know, please be responsive for coming with information. And we do our best to work together to further limit that spread. And I guess we should examine the signs and symptoms so that the public, those, the wonderful listeners right now here on 105.9 The Region understand what it is that they may look for. What would be the signs and symptoms of monkeypox? Yeah, so great point for everyone to be aware of. Um, usually what happens is you can get fever, uh, feeling really tired, swollen lymph nodes sort of in your neck, under your armpit. Uh, and a very characteristic symptom is the rash that you can get. So often it starts as just sort of like a flat patch, um, and then it, it gets progressively worse. So it can have like fluid-filled little bumps and then eventually sort of scars and, and scabs off. Um, and sometimes the fever and those symptoms come before the rash, but we've also seen it where the rash pops up first. It is a milder disease compared to uh, smallpox. So the virus that causes monkeypox is a distant relative of the virus that causes smallpox. Um, and just importantly, you know, in Canada, we haven't seen people get very sick um, or, you know, haven't had any deaths in Canada associated with this. Um, but it definitely the signs and symptoms and what to look out for. And then the key point being immediately self-isolate and and see a doctor, um, you know, if you are. And where does vaccination come in? Does it, Mm -hmm. is it important? Is it effective once symptoms arise? Or is it something that should be given as most vaccinations are? They're given prior to, uh, to any kind of inflammation of some, any kind of infectious disease. Exactly, yeah. So the vaccine is a preventive strategy, uh, so it doesn't work as a treatment. There are um, some antivirals that work as a treatment, but the vaccination strategy is more for that prevention. So there's vaccination once you've gotten exposed, um, and that is available. So in York Region, if we did, um, you know, if a case appears, we would vaccinate the people that have been in close contact with that case. And so any, anyone who fits that criteria would be eligible. Uh, and then there's also, um, before you've been exposed, uh, vaccination strategy that some people call a ring vaccination strategy. Uh, um, places have tried that. That's happening right now in Toronto amongst a higher risk groups. Um, and so that that's in place. But yeah, vaccine is a preventive measure, not uh, a treatment like like with other diseases, just as you said. And where are we in terms of treatment for monkeypox? So mostly, like I said, the um, disease has been mild and self-limited. So it kind of takes two to four weeks to go away. And to date, no one in Canada has gotten very, very sick um, or died. And the treatment is what we call supportive. So uh, kind of like what you would do with a cold. You know, there's lots of rest. You might take Tylenol, Advil. Um, and then also, you know, there is an antiviral that, that is used. And so the, the treating clinician would be talking to public health and talking to the ministry about ordering that. But for the most part, you know, people are at home. It's that rest, fluids, uh, and stay self-isolated. So you're contagious or infectious to other people until the rash uh, basically disappears. There is a stigma, it seems, attached to monkeypox. Does that make it difficult for people who are in contact with someone who has monkeypox or they themselves have it, make it difficult for them to come forward to, to let public health know and to seek help? 
Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think, like I said, with a lot of diseases, that stigma exists. And, you know, we did and we do see that with COVID-19 as well. And so I think it's really important to stress that this is not a targeted disease. It's not a targeted virus. And really, the potential exists for, for anyone to be infected. And really, you just have to, to be in close, prolonged contact. Again, it's not something you would get sort of being out and about at the grocery store, let's say. Um, but yeah, that stigma can exist, and it's really important that you know no groups are um, singled out or targeted for this because it's non-discriminant, um, and important for people to seek care if they're not feeling well. Um, but it, it's really great that we do have these larger preventive strategies, uh, and hopefully, in time, some larger vaccination efforts. We'll have to sort of stay tuned for that. You've got some really great, solid information on your website. Can you tell us what that is and why people should refer to it? Yeah, absolutely. We do have some messaging um, for the general population, just about signs or symptoms, what to do if you're feeling unwell, and just the general preventive messaging. So even things like, you know, masking, covering up the lesions, staying home when you're sick, like all of those same things that worked with COVID will also work here. Uh, I also want to point you to um, the uh, Gay Men's Sexual Health Alliance actually has some very, very good information on their website as well. Um, really good considerations about what to do, how to protect yourself. And in York Region, too, we're working with partner organizations to get the word out in affected communities, non-affected communities, all the like, um, but just to get some, you know, focused messaging of, of those who really need to know. Dr. Vareen Karachiwala, York Region's Associate Medical Officer of Health, thank you for your time on the feed. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. After the break, the need for blood and the growing doctor shortage. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Canadian Blood Services needs your help. Tina Cortez with The Call to Arms. Canadian Blood Services needs help right now more than ever to replenish a critically low national blood inventory. To explore how this happened and what happens next is Jennifer Matthew, Community Development Manager for Canadian Blood Services. Welcome to The Feed, Jennifer. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So, Jennifer, is the pandemic to blame for this low blood inventory? Well, um, you know, we can't blame everything on the pandemic these mm-hmm. days. Um, but uh, we've definitely seen a decrease of 31,000 of our active donors. Um, so these are donors who donate on a regular basis since the start of the pandemic. So what happens is, is this is putting a strain on our existing donor base. Um, so the existing donor base, are these are the ones that are donating already irregularly, so possibly two to three times a year. Um, and you know what? We're so grateful for all the donors who, who have continued continue to support patients throughout the pandemic. And why do you think those numbers decreased? You know, there's a number of reasons for this, so some of which do include um, those being affected by illness and isolation requirements due to COVID, um, but we're also seeing um, that we're limited ourselves and our ability to recruit new donors through in-person events, you know, out in the community, um, and, uh, you know, of course, there's also the natural attrition of our donor base as well. So we really have an immediate need for more donors to consider donating blood, plasma, or platelets so that we are meeting patient needs right now. And speaking of patients, what can you tell us about the patients who rely on transfusions? You know what? A lot of people want to know, you know, what what happens after I donate blood? Like, who is this going to, as you mentioned? Um, So we always talk about cancer patients. So a cancer patient could potentially need several units of blood a week. There's also accident victims who could need potentially dozens of units of blood, specifically if it's a severe trauma. You know, patients undergoing surgery or even just routine surgeries that could potentially also need blood. But one thing that we um, don't often speak about is those that suffer from rare blood disorders mm-hmm. that are literally surviving thanks to all of our donors. So, for example, there's a 15-year-old named Eric Polo right here in Toronto who has a rare blood disorder. He's received 
to over 200 blood transfusions already. He's only 15 and he's going to need them for the rest of his life. So donors have literally kept him alive and will continue to do so. So it's so important that we, you know, we recoup um, those 30,000, 31,000 donors that we've lost plus a lot more. So we're currently needing 100,000 brand new donors by the end of this year just to ensure that we meet patient needs. And I'm sure there are many patients like Eric out there, aren't there? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. My husband actually was one um, a number of years ago. He was diagnosed with cancer and uh, it was blood transfusions and those um, faceless donors that saved his life. So you never know when it's going to happen to you or a loved one uh, or family or friend. It's just, I think the statistic is one in two people will either know or need someone who will need a blood transfusion. Now, at this time of year, as the weather warms, does the CBS usually see a drop in donors anyway? We definitely do. Mm. Um, you know, summer vacation starts, people want to spend more time outside with friends and family. So our regular donor base, what we're finding is their uh, regular routine tends to change during the summer, right? So they'll take holidays from work and et cetera. So we definitely see a drop in donations uh, during summer as well as around long weekends. So, you know, we're always in need of blood. Blood is in need every minute of every day. So literally every minute there's someone in Canada needing a blood transfusion. And it's so important that, uh, you know, those people don't have to wait when they need it. We really need to step up and keep donating if you can. All right, let's get down to the specifics. Where can our listeners learn more about how to donate? Absolutely. So blood.ca, it's as simple as that. Great website, has information on, um, you know, blood, plasma, platelets, organs and tissues and stem cells. So go right on our website. You'll find all the information plus more on how you can join Canada's Lifeline. Even if you're somebody who's unable to donate blood, there's so many different ways that you can be part of Canada's Lifeline and ensuring that patient needs are met across Canada. Jennifer, keep us posted on the progress and uh, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here today, and uh, we look, I look forward to speaking with you hopefully soon. There is also a need for doctors. Jim Lang with that story. Well, as anyone in Ontario knows, or Canada, especially if you're in a small or medium-sized town, uh, finding a family doctor, finding people and physicians is difficult. There's a company doing something about it. They're called Metamap, and it's a Canadian technology company that is helping you deal with wait times and online for walk-in clinics. Thrilled to be speaking to their CEO, Blake Adam. Blake, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. I This is something near and dear to my heart. My parents um, live in a small town in Nova Scotia. They had trouble getting a doctor. My wife and I had some friends that moved to the Collingwood area, and when they thought, well, that's nice, and they had a devil of a time finding a family physician uh, this is a, a technology and a, a, a service that your company's providing that's dearly needed in this province right now, Blake. Absolutely. Across the country, uh, many, many people struggle to find a family doctor. Um, in Ontario, about 1.3 million people live without a family doctor. So um, I think it's a it's an issue that a lot of people face. I mean, the, the stats from your company shocked me, to be honest with you. Uh, a report in Collingwood, 17,000 residents don't have a family physician. In Kingston, 29,000 residents are in need of a family doctor. In Ontario, in 2022, this almost seems inconceivable that we're at this point. Why is it such a problem? Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, this, this is something that we're seeing across the country, and uh, it's really why we started Medimap. Um, uh, we've heard so many stories from people who don't have a family doctor and as a result end up relying on walk-in clinics for their day-to-day healthcare needs. And so it seems like a really simple solution to give people the ability to go on and look up the real-time availability at clinics in their community. You can see what are the wait times and, and which clinics are still taking patients for the day. And so that is basically the crux of what, what the service and technology you're offering, that if people go to Medimap, they can look up a, a walk-in clinic in their geographical area and find out a place that you're not going to sit there for six, seven hours waiting to see someone. Yeah, exactly. The, the idea is to use the resources that are available in the community more efficiently. And so we partner directly with the walk-in clinics and their staff use our software to publish their wait times online throughout the day. Now, what, what prompted you to come up with this technology? Well, we 
started MediMap uh, in BC actually about five years ago, um, and, and we've been partnering with Clinics Across Ontario for over four years now. And uh, and it was really just the frustrations that um, my business partner and I had experienced. We didn't didn't have a family doctor, and and we'd uh, you know gone through the whole experience of driving around from clinic to clinic only to be turned away because they uh, closed early for the day and then ending up in the emergency department when you don't need to be there. So it, it really did just seem like a, a simple solution that, that should exist and we, you know, we couldn't find anything like it. Speaking to Blake Adams, CEO of Medimap, and Blake, unfortunately, I think for a lot of people in Ontario, a lot of people across Canada, that this shortage of doctors, this problem trying to find physicians at a walk-in clinic, it's not going away anytime soon, is it? doesn't seem that way. It only seems to be getting worse. And we're hearing from, we, you know, we work with uh, most of the walking clinics across Canada now, and we're just hearing, particularly as we come out of the pandemic and more people are, are looking to get their healthcare needs addressed and go to clinics in person, um, we're, we're finding that they're increasingly uh, having to, to close early and then just getting busier and busier. So. You can get more details on their Twitter feed at Medimap Health, and then they'll go right to their website, medimap.ca, and then you go in, you find the walk-in clinic, you can find your location. It's actually quite easy to navigate. Uh, you can go if it's mental health, physical health, and I find that's the thing that I like about it. You're not just dealing with people's physical health, especially coming out of the pandemic, Blake. You're talking to people, hey, you've got a mental health problem. We have a way to help you navigate it as well. Yeah, I think that's the other piece of this is helping connect people with other services than just uh, walking clinic services. So if you need to find a last-minute appointment with a mental health provider or a physiotherapist or or an optometrist, you can you can go on and you can do that. Uh, all the available appointments are listed there, making it super easy so that you're not having to call around from clinic to clinic to find access to care. Blake, my compliments to you and your team for putting such a great uh, company together, Medimap, Medimap, M-E-D-I, Medimap.ca, to find a walk-in clinic near you, and it can just easy to navigate and easy to use to find the doctor that you need for your problem. Uh, Blake, thanks so much for doing this, and keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. When we come back, BB's Got Game and Markham's Ms. Marvel. Follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. A real-life tennis star now has a new page. Kevin Frankish serves up this next story. She is the pride and joy, and the darling, I should say, of uh, Thornhill. Bianca Andrescu is uh, one of the most successful tennis players in Canada, winning a Grand Slam of the 2019 U.S. Open, um, which is unheard of for a, a Canadian player. Uh, beating Serena Williams, also kind of unheard of for any player. Hello, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. What an introduction. I love it. <laughs> Well, I could have started with what your friends call you. BB. Yeah, BB. Yes. All right. Is that is that a wanted nickname? Um, nothing wanted, but I <laughs> love it because my parents started calling me that um just out of nowhere. And it was from a young age, and I always thought it was like a little childish, and I'm like trying to become you know, <laughs> I'm like, no guys, stop calling me that. But I ended up turning it into a book, so it's not that bad. I'm not complaining. <laughs> Let's talk about that book. How long has the book been out now? Oh, a month, I think. Yeah, a month? Wow, okay. And yeah. it's called, I'm looking at the book here, BB's Got Game, a story about tennis, meditation, and a dog named Coco. I like the title. <laughs> Tell me about the book. Yeah, so one day, um, I had a dream. I was about 15 years old, and I had a dream that I wrote a book and it didn't in the dream. Like, I didn't know if it was a children's book or whatever. I just knew that I wrote a book and I told my mom the next day about it. And she's like, Oh, well, why not? But at the time, obviously I couldn't really write a book. I had not much to talk about it, but then a couple of years later, here comes, you know, BB's got game. I have more to say. Um, and yeah, I wanted to kind of pull from my personal story, but I wanted to create something more, you know, universal and classic so that many people can relate, basically. Okay, we'll get to what the book is about in just a moment, but who's it for? 
Um, it's for my family, all my lovely friends um, that support me, and obviously Coco, and to anybody that um, wants to kind of hear my story and hopefully they can get inspired by it because I talk a lot about certain things that help me get through tough times. So that was kind of like the main purpose of writing the book. Tell me about the tough times. Um, there are many tough times, especially over the last couple of years. Um, everybody goes through them. And uh, for me, um, it kind of took a toll last year. Um, I was going through a really tough time mentally more than physically because physically I was very okay. And I was very grateful for that. But then I don't know, something wasn't like clicking up in here and I kind of felt like I was just going through the motions. And at one point I thought to myself, look, this is not fair for me. This is not fair for the people around me. Um, You know, even the way I was treating myself, I was very negative and I'm like, what can I do in order to get back? And this was just a constant battle with myself. And then at one point I just said, maybe I just need to take some time off. So I did. And that was a really good decision. What were you feeling and what do you attribute it to? You you said you just, something wasn't clicking, but were you feeling depressed? Were you feeling anxious? Were you feeling unfulfilled? I don't think I was depressed. Um, I was definitely very sad at times, very confused, um, definitely not satisfied with myself, with how I was uh, treating myself, um, with my results, obviously. I think it came from um, having so much success and then, you know, injury and then COVID. And then I didn't play for like a year and a half because of other things. And um, coming back in 2021, I was still seated at tournaments. I was still top 10, but I didn't feel like I was at that um, level, you know? And every time I lost, I kept identifying myself too much with that. It's like, I kind of hated myself in a way, Um, but it was super unconscious. And then at one point it just got too much. And I guess I kind of lost the unconditional love for myself that I had before and for the game. What changed? The time off for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, just staying staying away from the tennis court. I didn't watch any tennis. I traveled without a tennis racket uh, for the first time in a long time. And I was kind of discovering myself. I tried new things. I did martial arts. Um, I danced a lot. I went to dance classes. I did Pilates. Like I did a bunch of stuff. And I also oh. went on a retreat in Costa Rica. Uh, it's kind of like a yoga meditation retreat. So I did that and that really helped me find myself again, as cliche as that sounds, but it works. I recommend for anybody to do um, one retreat in their lifetime. Self-discovery. Yes. And is it going to stick or is there maintenance that needs to be done? Maintenance for sure. I've realized that once I got back in training mode, that it's not easy because I was kind of like in my own bubble at that retreat, but now I'm in the real world in a way. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, in a way it is the real world. <laughs> yeah. but, um, there's like so many more distractions. There's people that might not be aligned with how you think uh, or what you believe in. So like you have to manage all of these, basically be the calmness in the storm. What do you do to do that, to keep that maintenance? What are you doing now? I practice a lot of self-love. I make sure to take a lot of time for myself to do the things that I love, um, which is meditation, yoga, um, Pilates, watch movies. um, Breathe. Learn, yeah, a lot of breathing. That's part of the meditation. And um, like I'm super into manifesting things and Mm. affirmations and all that stuff. And it's been really, really helping. Let's talk about manifesting. It's something I believe in strongly. Um, it, it, what do you do? Like, so, like for instance, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when you hit the courts? You're in Berlin, and you're in a tournament there. What's going to be different about you hitting the court now, as say two years ago? Very good question. So I feel like now I'm stepping onto the court um, with more joy for the game. I try not to take life too seriously and my career too seriously because before that's what it was, but it was in a bad way. Cause obviously I need to be serious, but in a fun 
way mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. compared to before. And whenever I would make a mistake before, I would get super mad at myself. But now I'm just like, you know what? It's a part of life. It's a part of the sport. Just move on. And that was how I was before as well. But now it's just more consistent and it's with a bigger purpose. And um, were you were you playing tennis? Were you playing tennis for yourself before? Because it sounds like you're playing tennis for yourself right now. But before, were you sort of like playing for your coach, playing for your parents, playing for the, 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 the people back home? It turned into that when I started feeling the way I was feeling It definitely turned into that. Um, and it's weird because things can change so quickly. I, I, I just lost the passion for the game really. Mm -hmm. Like it was super weird. Um, but I mean, it's nice to go into the past and think about the past, but like, I'm just super happy with how everything is now, even going back, it's hard to even remember or even think about how I was feeling. Cause it's just so odd to me. Cause now I'm just like a new person. Your birthday is this week. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Um, how old are you going to be? You're going to be 22. 22. And you know, you know what? There are so many people your age who feel this way. What do you want to say to them? Because, because a lot of it, you know, a lot of people don't have hope. For sure. The reason why I play tennis is for a bigger purpose in a way. I kind of use that as a platform um, to achieve that bigger purpose. And I'm so grateful that I was able to find that. And that is to, you know, create something bigger after the sport. And even during my career, I want to continue to inspire and um, contribute to change in other people's lives, even if it's just a little bit, you know, help inspire them to inspire themselves in a way, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Thank you. And um, the thing I can say is life is going to be unfair at times. And that's just a given of life is what I call it. And so you really have to try to like figure out how to react in the best way possible when challenges come your way. And I mean, it sounds as simple as that, but it's so powerful. Like if you even just look at the positive in any situation, because there's always a positive. When I look at something that went wrong in a way, I don't look at it as a setback or something bad. I look at it as a challenge and just having that mindset creates a whole different environment. So that's definitely one. And another thing is try not to think what other people think about you and just... Hmm your thing and have confidence in yourself, believe in yourself. And that comes from, you know, doing affirmations, uh, maybe doing the things you love to do. Just, you basically have to like discover yourself in a way. Man, it, it, you know, and a lot of times too, and I don't know if you were like this, where you sort of sat back and say, okay, I'm, I'm not feeling great and I need someone to change this and I need a counselor and I need, I need people to pat me on the back and pick me up. But it sounds like what you discovered was no. I'm going to pick myself up. Is that, is that, is that accurate? hundred percent because there's not always going to be people in your corner because another um, given of life is people aren't always going to be loving and supporting sadly, but that's just human nature. And even myself, like I, I'm not always going to be like that, but that's, you know, me trying to figure out my mistakes and whatnot. But um just having that mindset is kind of like a good thing to keep the ball rolling in your self-love because if you have that unconditional love for yourself, nothing anyone really does matters except for, you know, what you do in a way. So if you can really pick yourself up when there's nobody around, that's like one of the biggest um, things in life. It's an illustrated children's book, uh, Baby's Got Game, a story about tennis, meditation, and a dog named Coco. Bianca Andrescu, thank you so much for this. Uh, Again, a happy birthday to you, and congratulations for this journey that you have made. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Our next superhero is from right here in Markham, Shaliza Backus with the Teen Star. 
Hey, I'm Shaliza Backus, and I am so excited to be joined by our very own hometown superhero from Markham, Ontario. She's the star of the new Disney Plus show, Miss Marvel, Iman Vellani. How are you? I'm so good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. So first of all, how are you? Like, are you still surviving? Are you still breathing? I'm sure like I the last couple weeks have been crazy. Yeah, I'm I'm hanging in there. I, I decided I'm not going to process anything until I get a vacation. Okay. So, soon, okay. but not like immediately soon. <laughs> You've been working hard. All right, let's start off talking about the show itself. Miss Marvel, what was it like shooting the show? Oh, seven months of uh, a lot of work and a lot of bruises and a lot of tears and a lot of laughs, just every possible emotion. I was feeling new emotions. I didn't even know I could feel it. It was just honestly the most surreal experience ever, you know, being a fan of the universe and then getting to be in it and playing a character who's such a fan because that, that just allowed me to be myself in front of a camera. And and as a new actor, that was very scary for me because I didn't know how to act in front of a camera or in real life at all. But um, they were like, just be yourself, like put, just, just do what you would do, react how you would react. That's what we want. And I was like, okay, that, that makes my life a million times easier. Uh, um, so yeah, it's just me getting to play dress up and, and I just felt like I was cosplaying on a, on a bigger level. Well, you look like a total pro to me. Can you explain how you personally can connect to the character of Kamala Khan? In every way possible. I, I was 15 when I picked up my first Miss Marvel comic and it was a it was the 19th issue. It was called Mecca and it was about Eid. That was, that was one of the main, um, that was the time period it was taking place and it blew my mind. Every time I buy comic books, I bring them home to my parents and I show them, I tell them about the character. I teach them a little something, something. And, uh, this time I was extremely excited. I was like, look, it's a Brown person. (laughs) Yes. In this comic, like my worlds are colliding. It was, it was beautiful. And it was like a comic book held up a mirror in front of me, you know, for, for my culture and religion to be displayed in such a normal way was so rare because oftentimes in Hollywood and in mainstream media, we see Muslims and, and South Asians, unfortunately misrepresented and, and they're generalized into the best friend character or, or they're oppressed or whatever, not to say that those stories don't exist, but those aren't the only stories that exist. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, we, we, really wanted to make Kamala as real of a character as possible and as relatable as possible. And that involved making her as specific as possible. Yes. And that actually brings me to my next point. You know, I'm a girl from Markham too. We got that in common. And, you know, I grew up watching the same Disney Channel shows that everybody else did. You know, you had Hannah Montana, Lizzie McGuire, Wizards of Waverly Place. And while they all have strong female characters, they don't necessarily look like we do. So I want to talk about representation and how amazing it is for me to see a brown girl, a Muslim girl as the main character in a show like this. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And, and I like that you brought up, you know, those old Disney Channel shows because I grew up on that too. And I never thought there was anything wrong with it. I didn't think I needed representation because I didn't know something that was missing mm-hmm. up until me reading the Miss Marvel comics. So like 15 years go by and I finally see myself represented in a positive light in, in a medium that I you know, look up to in in these comic books. And so that was, that was really, you know, a, a big eye-opening moment for me to see that there's, there's space for people like me in this industry and, and that you can take up space and you can have a voice. And it was just never taught to me growing up because all the shows I did watch were surrounded by white people. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. And, and the culture also super different. And I love the way that the Pakistani culture is weaved into the show and into the storyline. And there's mm-hmm. so many times throughout the first two episodes, the first two episodes are now available to stream. And there were so many relatable moments. And, you know, not just for me as like a brown Muslim, but I feel like for everyone with immigrant families whose parents didn't necessarily understand what they were going through as first generation kids, you know? So, and I remember there was one scene in the first episode where you're like, Ugh, can't I just be a normal teenager? Yeah, that that was like fully taken out of the comics too. And it's it's so true. And I think that scene really, I related to heavily because anytime I wanted to go to a party in high school, I would have to like convince my parents a week in advance. And mm-hmm. then we'd have to like compromise on a time I'd come home and they'd be like 11. And I'm like, no, the party starts at 11. Nobody leaves at 11, mom. Literally. And <laughs> so it was just really easy for us to kind of bring ourselves into this world because it, it, it was so real and it was so relatable. And, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that we can kind of, 
humanized Muslims and, and South Asian people in, in such a, you know, accessible franchise that is Marvel. And it kind yeah. of did. Honestly, amazing. And I do want to mention like a specific little detail. Um, the bracelet, the bracelet that Kamala comes across. It's her great grandmother's uh, bangle, Aisha. And yeah. it, this is what unlocks uh, the power for her. But there was also a mention of Aisha bringing shame to the family with those powers. And that also I feel is super relatable because it's like, how many times have we heard what will people think if you're different from the norm or you go against the tradition? So like, what did you think about that? Yeah, community plays such a huge part in, in, you know, South Asian families, just showing that close-knit family relationship, but then also showing, like, you are a representation of your family name. And, you know, any bad, good or bad thing you do, every brown person is going to find out about it. It's like the gossip chain, and it never ends. And so, you know, my parents and Kamala's parents are obviously very cognizant of that. Of Like, look, we, we have a reputation, and we want to be shown in a certain way we've worked so hard to bring our kids to to this you know america and then for them to just like go off and then do drugs or whatever it's it's not fair because we we had to grow up very differently for them to achieve you know and, and experience whatever they wanted to so i think that is the constant struggle of that sandwich generation is of like we want our kids to hold on to their culture and not forget about it but we also want them to like thrive in in these you know in a new society yeah. And that's exactly it. I think that we're going to, I assume we're going to see a lot more of that uh, throughout the show and uh, just maybe your parents' uh, mindset maybe changing a little bit. And, you know, without giving too much away, what can viewers expect for the rest of the season? They can expect Kamala to find out a lot more about herself and about her family and how, you know, her her culture and, and her family history play a huge part in in who she is. And, and I think she ends up marrying a lot of, you know, what, like the 50 million things that when combined make Kamala Kamala. And I think that's kind of the whole point of our show is to subvert labels and expectations, because this is not the Muslim show. This is not the Pakistani show. Kamala is not just Muslim. She's not just Pakistani. It's like, she's this amalgamation of so many different things that when combined make her who she is. And so, yeah, we, we, we see her evolve and, and just become her own version of what a hero can look like and awesome watered down version. Yes. I love that. I love that. Is there anything else you wanted to add or wanted to share with us about the show or about yourself? I think you have it covered and people should <laughs> stay tuned every Wednesday on Disney Plus. That's right. Miss Marvel is now streaming on Disney Plus. We've got new episodes airing every Wednesday. The first two are out. I've watched both of them. 10 out of 10. Highly recommend. <laughs> Iman Valani, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. This was fun. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.